0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So, you know, you're, you're very familiar with Chris, but uh, as she was speaking, I remembered that early, really early in my practice, Chris was going off to a two-month retreat at IMS, and she handed over to me the manager Thursday night manager job. We were at the, the Quaker House at the time, so it involved a lot of setup stuff. And then she came back from retreat and she wouldn't take the job back. <laughs> I've forgiven her for that <laughs> because it turned out to be a wonderful experience anyway. So. Um, so there. So um, what I'm going to talk about is cultivation and preservation. You know, cultivation and persistence of right effort. How do you how do you maintain wholesome states? What does it mean to do that anyway? So um, the Buddha's last words were Vayadhamasankara sankara, sampaditha." All things are impermanent. Strive on untiringly. Strive on untiringly. That's what right effort is about. Strive on untiringly. Now what's interesting is this is based, this striving business is based on the word apamada, apamada, And it's usually translated as diligence or vigilance. And I heard a talk by Stephen Batchelor, who is another eminent teacher that I love quite much, quite much, quite a lot, Stephen suggested that there's another way to translate apamada as care, to take care, take care to practice diligently. The care, uh, the, the word apamata is a, a negative term. It means not negligent, not drunken, not swerving from the path. So he said the opposite of that, then, would be caring for the path, caring for, caring for the direction, caring for yourself, caring for others as part of the practice, caring for, for your environment as part of the practice. So I'd like us to keep that translation in mind as we think about striving. When we talk about right effort, that there is, there is a softness to effort that will prove to be really useful in your practice. This, this phrase of the Buddha speaks to persistence and determination. Persistence and determination. It, right effort has to have these qualities. If we want to sustain wholesome mind states, we have to have the intention to do so. You know, a lot of us come to the practice and we say, I'm going to meditate And we take up mindfulness meditation and we take up mindfulness and we kind of focus on meditation as what practice is about. For the Buddha, practice was about all of life. So pretty much everything I'm going to talk about is going to assume that we're talking about both things. We're going to talk about meditation and we're going to talk about how do we live our lives? How do we go about being in this world and practicing? How do we develop effort in a way that supports the practice. Okay, So we get nowhere if we don't do the practice. That's sort of the backside of that determination. We can say, oh, yeah, I've got mindfulness. I know mindfulness. And then we, we designate this piece of our life over here. As, this is when I practice mindfulness, and I'm going to practice over here. You've heard said many times, Chris repeated this morning about, The agitation that comes from not living an ethical life. You can't can't exert right effort if you're busy doing something else. (laughs) You're not paying attention to what it takes to have a settled mind, a non-agitated mind. You know, when we sit down to practice or when we try to apply it to our lives, we run into obstacles. We run into obstacles like expectations, ours and other people's. I have an expectation that I am going to always be kind. Oh, really? And then I meet the world. (laughs) Now, it turns out that having the intention to be kind helps me when I'm angry. I'm having a disagreement with my husband, and and I find myself getting angry, and I remember that my intention is to be kind to my husband. And very little else is important after I remember that. It's not worth fighting over. What, almost whatever it is. It may be something that has to be discussed again later, but not in the spirit of anger. Because that's not being kind, and that is an overriding intention. Okay, so we can, we can work with intention. We have to overcome Doubts. I can't do this. I'm not good at this. The practice doesn't work anyway. It's it's fine when you're on the cushion, but it's not going to help me when I'm angry with my husband. You know, when we begin, it seems impossible. And after we've been practicing for a few years, it still seems impossible. And then much later, much later, it still seems impossible. <laughs> The nature of it doesn't change. Our capacity changes. Our competency changes. Our faith changes. But we still have resistances. We still have to overcome them. So, you know, we may have an intention to live, live a life of simplicity. And we're very easy with that. And we're determined with that. And we drive by. No, We walk by this beautiful house Stunning house, wonderful compound, beautiful landscaping. See, like, want, need. The cascade is very quick, much quicker than we suspect. And all of a sudden we want and we're running into, why do they have that place? They probably don't even, des- they probably don't even appreciate it. I bet, and we have long stories about them. And then we say, why am I so caught up in this? And we're lost in the judgment about it. And then, and then it's followed by a whole series of I'm this way, you know, I'm no good or I'm, I'm, I'm the greedy type or all kinds of stories that we adopt. And then we decide we have to fix it. And we devote a lot of effort to fixing things. I suspect that what we have to fix is not us. We can look at those original intentions and say, ah, what about this intention? Do I not understand? Do I not see? If my intention is to be kind, hmm, why do I want to be kind? What's that about? What, what, oh, I want to be seen as kind. I don't want to hurt people. When we get down to the intention of, I don't want to create suffering or be suffering, we're very close to the truth. But what form that suffering takes for us is your own form of suffering, not mine, whatever my intention is. Chris alluded to this when she, when she said, you know, there's not a right way for one person versus another person. What, what is your intention and what is it that you are bringing to this moment that needs to be seen? If the intention is not to be perfect but to get rid of suffering, one of the ways to get rid of suffering is to look carefully at the intention. We often have an unconscious intention to be perfect. Unconscious. Sometimes it's more conscious, but mostly it's unconscious. We just want to be perfect. We want to be seen a certain way. We intend to see clearly, but it's not that easy. We have to say, oh, everything seems kind of agitated and up in the air here. What else is going on? This is how we we get to the place where we notice, oh, this isn't where I want to be. What's, What's going on here? What else is true here? Don't take the first answer. Don't take the first answer. Persistence gives us faith that we can overcome the hindrances, that we can overcome our doubts, that we can overcome our failures. Persistence. Just keep trying. Just keep trying. It isn't about succeeding. That's wanting to be perfect. What we're trying to do is not be in pain. Not to be in pain. To notice that things are constantly changing. Constantly changing. How do we influence the way things are changing in a way that brings us more joy and more ease? How do we cultivate wholesome mind states? Not how do I become a better person. That comes along with the ride, actually. (laughs) It's how do I get to a place where what I'm entertaining in my mind is wholesome? One thing is that we develop a sense of spiritual urgency. Spiritual urgency. This has to happen. And you know what? It's better if it happens now. We can't wait until a moment of crisis and say, oh, thank God I've got my practice, because we don't have the practice. We haven't been practicing. We're not in the place where we can just say, this too, this too. But if we practice this too, oh, okay. If we contemplate the uncertainty of life, The uncertainty of life. The uncertainty that what's true today is going to be true tomorrow. We know that's not true. We all believe in impermanence in this room, right? We all have a sense of impermanence. But we don't live our lives that way. There are lots of psychological reasons for that. Emotional reasons for that. In hospice, we had a phrase, Don't wait. For your practice, don't wait. Don't wait. There's the principle of inclusivity. Include everything in your practice. Include the part where you don't like what you're doing, that you don't like how you're behaving. Include that part. Notice that part. That is part of practice. That is practice. Don't just work on improving yourself. Don't run away from the parts that you're rejecting for some reason. Don't run away from it. There's something to be seen there. There's something that will give you wholeness if you can see it and be with it. This is how things are. It's the ability to be with how things are as opposed to wanting them to be different that we're trying to cultivate. There's a spirit of challenge. Some of you mentioned trying to find that, that place where uh, the effort should be less or more. Sometimes we need to challenge. It's, it's in a spirit of not, not the, the spirit of, I should be better at this, or I should be spending more time at this, or I should be. But what happens if I do this? So let's say you're sitting on the floor and you're cross-legged and your knees are hurting and you say, okay, I shouldn't move. And so you stay there because you shouldn't move. This kind of effort can be harsh, kind of like the bell. But the effort that says, I wonder what would happen if I could stay just a little longer. It's much softer. It's a, much, it's a suggestion that has to do with, I'm not trying to make myself do something. I'm trying to see what happens. What happens if I just stay with it? Oh, it hurts more. Well, I think I'm going to move now. And you carefully move. This is not a failure. This is what is true. This is being with what is true. Cultivate the understanding that this is what's true. and then try not to delude yourself. <laughs> Which, you know, is the hard part because if you're deluded, you don't notice it. But you can tell. There's a sense of, huh, what happens if that's not true? Test it. Ah, this is about a, just a little spirit of curiosity, not a grim determination to stick through it at all costs. What happens if I The real secret to this is mindfulness. To cultivate wholesome mind states, you have to know what state your mind is in. Mindfulness is what gives you the measure of balance. Am I pushing myself too hard? Am I not pushing myself hard enough? Am I here for this? Am I not here for this? Am I in the room? Am I not in the room? My favorite, my favorite uh, Buddhist writing of all are chapters one and two of the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind led by mind made by mind. Speaker act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows like the wheels of the cart behind the hooves of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. I check my mind. Is my mind agitated, rough, tight? Is Is my mind peaceful? If my mind is peaceful... I'm at ease. If my mind is not peaceful, ah, hmm, what's happening? So that I'm not so much paying attention to the story about what's happening, about which I can spin very reliable, rich tales. But what is the quality of my mind right now? What is the quality of my mind? That's the principle of the, I don't like this anger, is what's the quality of my mind? I, this causes suffering, it's a quality of awareness know the attitude of your mind know the condition of your mind is it allowing, is it not allowing it takes bravery it takes honesty to look out What's really happening here? What's really happening here? Someone told me the other day, Oh, well, you know, I have doubts. Doubts come up. It's okay. I'm I'm not worried about doubt. Once I recognize doubt, I can just let it go. And my first thought was, Oh, what's really happening? Now that you've labeled everything that's uncomfortable, doubt, you don't have to deal with anything that's uncomfortable anymore, right? Right? Ask yourself, is this an immediate response? This is a good convenient box that I put this feeling of discomfort in. Take just a little more effort and say, is there anything else? Just that much. Not a lot. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Just, is that all? Hmm. And then you don't even have to answer the question. It's just being open to the possibility, open to the possibility. An important part of this is perseverance of, of effort. Not push, 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 but consistency, consistency. You know, I learned to knit as a child. And then I took it up when I was a teenager for a while. And I took it up a little bit later, you know, in about my early 30s. And then I took it up again when I, was, when I retired. And I can pretty much knit a shawl. But I can't get good at anything because I've never really just sat down and kept doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. over. (laughs) Persistence is really important. It isn't about taking a class in knitting or getting the expert opinion, although that can be useful. It's about knitting. It's keeping at it. There is... um, There's a sense of balance that has to do with being really clear about where you're putting the energy. Not so much how much energy, not so much how much energy, but I'm putting the energy in. Utejaniya says strong mindfulness is used to describe a state of mind in which the five spiritual faculties of faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom are in balance. A state of mind that has been developed through the momentum of persistent practice. Momentum of persistent practice. It carries you when you maybe don't have the energy. Just every day, every day, the intention to keep going. So I'm going to read. Make sure I get the right one. Not the Diga Nikai. here. So, the Buddha said, this is how the Buddha dealt with it. This is from a sutta called the Two Kinds of Thought. Two Kinds of Thought. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, we should be so grateful, (laughs) it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thought into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. Okay, we can see this dichotomy. As I abided thus diligent, ardent, and resolute. A thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from nibbana. When I considered this, this leads to my own affliction. It subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both myself and others, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. This is what we'd like to be able to do. So then he goes on and he talks about other ill will and and renunciation so on. Excuse me. But with excessive thinking and pondering... I might tire my body, and when the body is tired, the mind becomes disturbed, and when the mind is disturbed, it is far from concentration. So I steadied my mind internally, quieted it, brought it to singleness, and concentrated. Why is that? So that my mind should not be disturbed. So that my mind should not be disturbed. Bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation, he has abandoned the thought of sensual desire to cultivate the thought of renunciation, and then his mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation, etc. This is it. What you think about is what arises. What starts in the mind creates the next moment. Cultivate kind thoughts. Cultivate ease. Watch the energy. Watch for agitation in the mind. Be aware of the energy. One of the most important things that I've become aware of in my practice is the difference between being tight and being open and soft. I ask myself, when is this appropriate? Is this a pro- an appropriate way to be? What causes me to feel safe? Tightness is stressful, openness is not. Can I be open? And vigilant? Can I be open and safe? What does it feel like to be open and vigilant? When am I safe? What is the quality of my awareness? Is this useful or not? Do I need to? Get my energy up, or do I need it to be still? In order to keep from having an agitated mind, how do I do that? How do you do this? How do you find a place, however brief, where you feel safe? When you feel safe, please notice it. Don't say this is an accident notice it give it re- give it account for the honesty of that moment should your mindfulness be tight focused or does it need to be open i see i see this tightness i see i'm anxious i feel the anxiety here i'm focusing on where it is in my body This is getting me nowhere. This feels like I'm getting tighter and tighter. What happens if I say, this anxiety is existing in this room, not in my body. It's existing in this room. Give that anxiety space. Don't try to force it away. Don't try to make it be what it's not. Don't make it go somewhere else. Give it more room. Invite it in for tea. Am I investigating too much? Relax. You can't do this practice if you're tight. Watch the energy. What's the energy in your body? Is it up? Is it down? Be aware of what you're carrying around in your head. Don't be seduced by calm. Do not be seduced by calm. Steadiness is different than calm. Ah, here. Woo, agitated. (laughs) Okay. It's going to be an agitated time. I feel this agitation. And I can be with agitation. I get it. Okay, I can be with it. This is the practice. Be interested in whatever is happening Now, So I'm going to read you a poem. It's called Rope. It's by Rin Williams. Rope. The girl's father laughs a little too hard when I say she knows what's important in life. As his daughter whips the dime store jump rope over her head for the 12,000th time, laughs as if I'm joking when really she has it down. Sparkly pink handles grimy with effort, her face obscured by her hair, shins thin and bruised, socks down at the ankles, abandoned by the rest of the crowd, the concrete square, an archipelago, an alignment with rigor the others cannot fathom, she moves with fierce persistence into afternoon, the heft of the handle, smack of the rope, no double dutch, limbo, no communal game. But this resolute definition of rhythm, slatted bench shadows lengthening into space, the other kids simply forgetting she's there, her solitary corner of the playground darkening as the dinner hour approaches, while pigeons pause on their branches, squirrels come down the trunk and stop, and rush hour beyond the fence, cars idling, and the ropes metronome, forgotten as breath, weaving all the disparate energies of girl. Elation, fury, eagerness, song into one singular strand. May you experience your practice with fierce persistence. Just keep turning the rope. Nothing else. Thank you. Now, I finally managed to get us off the schedule. Aren't you happy? (laughs) We've been trying all afternoon to do this. So we're going to break into groups again. So if you can get into groups of four, we're going to talk some more about effort. So in the spirit of, we're not trying to work so hard, but persistent effort... I'd like you to think about and discuss with one another, go around the circle as we did before, the question of what is happening when you feel at ease in your practice? What is happening when you feel at ease in your practice? When there's a sense of openness, when it just seems to be happening, what is happening? What is your experience? What do you notice? What feels right when it's happening? Okay? Take a moment to reflect, but don't overthink it. (laughs) Just see what comes out of your mouth. Okay. I hope you had fun contemplating what's going right. <laughs> Does anybody have any comments about that? Are you willing to own up to something going right? <laughs> when is there ease?
2: Well, I'll start. Um, I had ease about being an hour late <laughs> or being on a different system of time <laughs> than, than everyone else. I kind of liked my system today. Um, yeah. uh, what came up for me is I've noticed that when there's a strong sense of trust that there's also an ease you know uh-huh. like it's not on the Enneagram system I'm a five so I want to like know what's going you know, like I want to know the future you know in great detail but when I can have that sense of trust that I don't I really don't know what's gonna happen but that there's um, maybe trusting in um, the practice you know, the fruits of the practice so far for me and um, relying on the kindness of strangers.
1: Thank you.
3: Um, we also kind of came up with trust because when we're at ease and uh, when, when things are going well, then, or, you know, then we, when we feel at ease, then there's this sense that things are going to be okay and that it's okay right now and there's almost this trust that um, that we'll be okay, that we're putting in enough effort. And it's not like this tightness or agitation like you were talking about. So it feels really good. (laughs) And I kind of was intrigued by what you said about um, being open and safe. Because, you know, there's a tiny little old niggly part of me that feels like, well, have I addressed everything? Am I being lackadaisical? How can I be open and safe? So, Mm -hmm. yes, Mm -hmm. maybe be interested in hearing a little more about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, and it's expressed somewhat in that, that sense of trust mm-hmm. that uh, one of the spiritual qualities is faith. And it's the faith that arises out of practice mm-hmm. where you, you do, in fact, see the results of practice. You see, even, even from sitting down, you know, when, uh, when EMTs come into the room to rescue somebody, the first thing they say is, take a deep breath. Because there's an instant result of taking a deep breath and letting it out. Which, at this point, we no longer notice because we're so busy following the breath and paying so much attention to it. And, which is why it's important to notice, Oh, there's a sense of ease here right now. Just, it, along with everything else that is happening. So this, this sense of being open can... Um, I think it's one of the virtues of being on retreat. Retreat is a very safe place. You kind of let your guard down. And it gives you the opportunity to notice that you have your guard up. So uh, I recently went on retreat, and it was following a weekend with uh, my grandchildren, who were two and four. And I'm much older than two and four. They they were with us for three days, and by the end of those three days, we were very close to totally losing anything resembling equanimity. They they were challenging for us, and we were exhausted, And, and I was getting all my stuff together to go on retreat and be gone for five days, and my husband wanted to do the taxes while I was away, so I had to get the stuff I was responsible for. So I was telling him where to find them, and I had the kids in the car, and I was ready to go, and I was saying goodbye, and I burst into tears. Because I realized I, I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I realized at that moment I was already letting go of how much I was holding myself. Holding the situation that I wanted it to be right, I wanted the kids to be right, I wanted I, I didn't want to yell at them, I wanted things to be a certain way. And and in that moment I noticed my willingness to then be vulnerable. Then I was willing to be vulnerable because it was almost over. And I had pretty much control. I just had to drive the kids home, right? And I was going to retreat, a very safe place. And that's when I noticed how much I had been holding, how much I had not been feeling safe. Oh, that experience now allows me to be more vigilant about that, to be more careful about letting go of that. And, and seeing that it was just my holding. It was this holding, this trying to make things something other than perfect that was causing all the suffering that I pretty much wasn't even aware of other than the, the agitation of knowing that I wanted it, you know, that I was tired and so on. So I think a lot of it has to do with trust. It's okay now to let go. And to, to notice what's going on in those moments and say, oh, I can do this again. Sorry, I went on a little long there. Please.
4: Hello. Uh, uh, sometimes I'm having a hard time with this because um, we're talking about feeling safe and at ease. Uh, and certainly life situations, like uh, grandkids and <laughs> everything, um, challenge that. Um, but uh, for me, what I'm working on is more like freely, without any pressure. I mean, the grandkids don't show up. Uh, going into a situation of discomfort, um, I'm not required to. Uh, I think um, a real simple example right now is, I think, since the uh, everything's happening in Ferguson, there's records of policemen... Uh, making money out of arresting black people, and the you know, the portion of black and white arrests is way off, you know, and, and other police uh, um, police in different cities. Um, I, I I guess I feel like your examples, you know, you're talking about shopping and things, but uh, it's not just wanting something. It's like if people have different personalities and different desires, but some people feel. Are responsible are for what, what's going on in this country. We have to help make the country better. Uh, d- people have different degrees of response to those kinds of things. and different times in your life, you have different things. But um, I'd like you to talk about making, not just dealing with a tough situation, but willingly deciding to go into something difficult and keeping your ease during that. Something you could, as a white person, I don't have to do a damn thing about it, but I've decided not to. How... Uh, that kind of, not necessarily that particular issue, but anything where you don't have to, but you, you go in. I, I, it seems, I don't, I just, I have a kind of a hard time. I feel like people are talking about making a comfortable cocoon for themselves. I know that's not what you're talking about. I know that. But um, uh, you haven't touched on this thing of actually choosing to go into discomfort. I don't, I don't feel you, that okay. that's been covered. And I, I'd really that's like someone to say something about it. Thank okay. you.
1: Okay. Um. Um inherent in your question is uh, a value judgment about uh, how how raw, how uh, how life-threatening, perhaps, the decision is. And choosing. So, um, So it's hard for me to come up uh, with an example from my own life. I've not had my life threatened. Mm -hmm. However, one of the things that I chose to do, which was quite frightening to me, was to volunteer as a hospice volunteer at Laguna Honda Hospice. Mm -hmm. At Laguna Honda, it's a a skilled nursing facility for people, uh, the indigent of San Francisco. Most of them come straight off the street. What I chose to do was be present for people who were frightening to me, who, some of whom were violent, some of whom, uh, all of them were facing death, which is not an unfrightening prospect, although uh, it's had a salutary effect on my own beliefs about death. And the first time I did that was really quite frightening to me. And later, I continued doing it because I realized what a protective cocoon I was in and that this brought me to the edge of confronting more existential things. So, um, one of the the messages of Zen Hospice, which is the organization I worked with, was to bring your whole self, to bring your whole self. And that, pre- and to be present, to be totally present. So to be present for what is uncomfortable, I think is what you're talking about, where you choose to be present for what's uncomfortable. And what I discovered was that it was entirely possible for that to happen. But the first thing that was required was I had to show up. I had to show up. And the discomfort that I felt, you know, was... Sometimes it was high and sometimes it was not. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I discovered was by confronting it, admitting that I was frightened, I came to know a lot of things about how my mind worked. I grew a certain amount of faith and confidence that I could be in that situation. Um, And then there came a day when I decided to stop. It was not related to the danger of the situation, what formerly had been the danger of the situation, but because of other factors in my life, it was time to stop doing that. It was, it was time because I had reached my capacity, which at one point I thought was immense. <laughs> yes. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it, it involves showing up, paying attention to what's going on for you, um, and then trying it again, and persisting. It's, it's the same thing. It's mindfulness, it's persistence, it's, it's leaving the mind, noticing one's prejudices. Um, I particularly remember a very violent woman who was, was very ill, and uh, she had been brought in really at the last minute, from the, directly from the street, And she was yelling and screaming, and nobody would get close to her. And I walked up to her. I watched for a while. And I walked up, and I sat down next to the bed, and I said, You're safe here. And she looked out from under her arm at me, and I was really sad that she was looking at a white face because she was really scared. And she said, I'm safe? And I said, Yes. And she quit yelling. And everybody was afraid of her, but it was when I noticed that she was afraid, and I could say to her, "You're safe." That's the best example I can give you. Anybody else? Uh, Yeah, um,
4: you you can't voluntarily choose to go into a situation that's uncomfortable if you never feel comfortable. (laughs) And um, I I actually remember the moment in the first six months of my practice where I think for the very first time I felt what I now know is the absence of anxiety. And maybe I'd felt it before, but I hadn't noticed it, but in my experience it was I didn't even know it was. I thought the world was divided into people who sort of breathe normally in their <laughs> and their heart's and me, right? <laughs> Suddenly, I felt like I could breathe normally and my heart beat regularly, and it—it it really felt like the first time. And, and and I touched into that, and I've I've been able to to find it again and find that that same ease. Beautiful.
1: Thank you.
5: So, there is one thing that comes up in response to what you are bringing up and talking about. Um, I um, am a therapist intern, and I work in situations that can be very disturbing and are very disturbing. And I feel like there is, I guess there is that sense that I could choose not to. Um... And what I recently found is really helpful is that when you have a choice, when I have a choice around stepping into it, I also have a choice of preparing myself and kind of preparing that state, what you were saying about being present. And it requires cultivation and it requires the constant practice. Um, But something that helps me to to step into that difficulty is knowing that I did did put an effort into uh, preparing. I'm going in, and I also know that I'm going to be able to come away from it and and come back to then digesting it and preparing for the next one. Um, So I feel like there is some strength in you know, having choice, not just... It's different when the catastrophe just comes out of the bloom um, without preparation.
0: Anything, any further comments or questions or anything on your mind? We've got a few minutes here. Yes.
1: I wanted to share that experience of being in a wholesome state. Uh, one of the things that arises for me is surprise And that being in a place where I really have no idea what the hell is going to happen next, (laughs) and that's okay. I mean, maybe it gets back to trust, but more Mm -hmm. it's the living experience Mm -hmm. of impermanence. Right. And that sometimes I am just amazed at um, that which arises in front of me. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Are we feeling complete on this subject, or ready to launch into a month of looking at it? <laughs> Not complete, but ready to ready to look some more. Okay. Okay. Well, let's have a short settling in sit. We'll just states by offering some loving kindness. May I feel safe? Be happy and peaceful. And I be healthy, strong. May I be at ease with the conditions of my life. And reflecting a bit on all of us here and the people you've spoken to today. May we all feel safe. Inwardly safe. May we all be happy and peaceful. We all be healthy and strong. May we all be at ease with the conditions of our lives. Extending this out to everyone, all the places in our country and society and world, all the beings as big as our hearts can hold. May all beings find a sense of inner safety. Be happy and peaceful May all beings be healthy and strong beings be at ease in the conditions of their lives So hopefully you can stay and join us for abundant snacks and tea and some chatting. And uh, I think maybe some people came after the very beginning. I just want to mention again, remind you that on June 20th is a day-long retreat at our Insight Retreat Center for this program, and everyone's invited. And you'll be getting an email about how to register. We need to register. In a couple weeks, in a week or two. Okay? So, hope to see you there. Thank you.